First Kings chapter 8, if you'll turn there with me. Last time together, if you were here with us or if you weren't, we looked at the construction of the temple itself, the assembly process as they began to build the temple. We saw it was a seven-year construction process and we looked at how the temple was laid out, how the stones were quarried elsewhere as they were brought in then and just perfectly assembled together, how the interior of the temple uh, was laid out with cedar covered on the inside, the wood covering all the stone, and then of course everything overlaid with gold and all the different ornamental furnishings and designs, the artistic work that was in the temple, the various furnishings, the, the, the way the temple itself was built, the measurements we looked at. And basically we saw that the temple itself was laid out much like the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle was the uh, temporary portable house of worship that during the time of the wilderness wanderings and up until this time under King Solomon's reign when a permanent structure is now built, uh, the, the tabernacle was that portable worship system. Remember it was sort of built in two rooms the front half of the tabernacle was the holy place where there was the table of showbread and the lampstand and the altar of incense there in that first room and then there was a veil which then separated the rear room which was referred to as the holy of holies or the most holy place where the ark of the covenant that most really holy and reverent furnishing was which had the mercy seat on top of it with the cherubim there that were on top and that was where atonement was made once a year for the sins of the people as the high priest would go in to the holy of holies that rear room only one time a year remember one man the high priest could go in with the blood of a sacrifice and make atonement for the sins of the people and that was where god manifested his presence where the shekinah glory of god or the you know the presence of god himself was manifest among the people and again the idea of how that was all laid out was meant to be a a picture of heaven in some ways that's why Moses was to create the tabernacle as he was and it was also meant to be as well a reminder to the people that they could not have direct access into the presence of God at that time uh, so the veil was a reminder of that and uh, of course as the temple is now built we saw last time in our study together basically much the exact same layout there were assume, uh, some similar uh, you know uh, things but certainly there were a few variations basically the temple was about twice the size of the tabernacle but again built much the same way there was that front room where was the holy place there was uh, at this point now multiple lampstands, multiple tables for the showbread. There was still the altar of incense. There was still then the secondary rear room uh, where the ark we'll see will be placed tonight in our study together where would be the holy place or the most holy place in the back of that. And then out in front of the temple, as we saw last time, remember there was a courtyard area where there was a brazen altar where the sacrifices were offered by the priests and the Levites, the blood sacrifices as the people came to worship. And there was also that bronze laver, which was sort of just like a massive uh, pool that was there where they would wash in ceremonial ways the priests would as they went in and out to do their ministry and as well it was also just the courtyard area out front which was in layers was where the people would gather and would actually come and worship the Lord it was only the priests that would go into the temple building itself so the physical structure now of the temple has been built this beautiful facility that was created again all the ornamental work all the artistic designs 
overlaid with gold. And what we have now as we come to chapter 8 is basically now the dedication ceremony of the temple itself. If you notice the last verse of chapter 7, it tells us, so all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And again, it was a seven-year process we saw for them to complete the building of the temple. And Solomon, it says, brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, that is for the temple, the silver and the gold and the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Now, chapter 8 goes on to tell us, really, as I said, sort of the dedication ceremony and the bringing of now the ark of God, the most important furniture piece in the temple because the ark of god was basically a representation symbolically of god's throne and therefore that's what brought the presence of god to be manifest among the people and that's what they will now transition from the tabernacle which they've been using up to this point to the temple because the temple now in jerusalem will be the permanent uh, house of worship there in jerusalem among the people of israel so the temple is built chapter 8 verse 1 tells us now solomon assembled the elders of israel and all the heads of the tribes the chief fathers and the children of israel to king solomon in jerusalem that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is in Zion. So they're now going to transition the ark, that most holy furnishing, to put it in the temple to really sort of seal off the final uh, process so that they might dedicate this temple and allow it to begin to function in its full operation as God's house of worship for the people verse 2 says therefore all the men of israel assembled with king solomon at the feast in the month of ethanim which is the seventh month now uh, interesting to take note here remember it told us in our prior verses that the temple itself was actually finished it was finished the bible told us in the eighth month now, if it was finished in the eighth month, it says here that this dedication ceremony is now going to happen in the seventh month. It does seem to indicate that potentially we have about a 10 month, maybe 11 month gap of time between the finishing of the construction of the temple and the actual dedication ceremony. The reason for that lapse of time, we're not certain. It could be that just the preparations, when you see all that goes on and all the sacrifices that are made, it could be there was this process to get things ready for this incredible dedication ceremony. That could be the reason. It also could be that they were purposely wanting to dedicate the temple in conjunction with the Feast of Tabernacles. And when it says here in verse 2 that the people assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, well, the, the feast in the seventh month was typically the Feast of Tabernacles. And remember, Tabernacles was that feast that commemorated God's preservation of his people throughout the time of their wilderness wandering. And they would remember how God was faithful to them and God preserved them. And this was the feast that they chose to utilize as the dedication ceremony itself. So verse 3 says, All the elders of Israel came... And all the priests, as this was God's command, remember, not just anyone could transport the ark. They had made that mistake before. Remember in the days of Samuel, we saw that where they did not transport the ark properly. And David, the first time he tried to move the ark, did it incorrectly, not in the, the accordance with what the word of God had said to do. 
and actually remember someone died as the result of that so now we have the proper transition showing reverence for God and for the presence of God again the ark was symbolic of that so now the priests come together they take up the ark the ark was carried remember it was to be transitioned uh, by being carried not pushed around on a on a cart as David made that mistake in his days verse 4 says and they brought up the ark of the Lord the tabernacle of meeting and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle the priests and the Levites brought them up verse 5 and King Solomon all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were before the ark notice as they were transitioning it says sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for the multitude so as they're transitioning the ark out of reverence for God and dedication to the Lord it seems that there's this sacrifice of worship that's going on throughout this whole process whether again they're taking a few paces and then they're stopping and just spending some time offering sacrifices in worship this wasn't just sort of a rushed thing it wasn't done in a trivial way there's something about this where the people are trying to show reverence for God where they're realizing the value and the importance of worship it tells us here in fact so much worship and sacrifice was taking place as says they were sacrificing sheep and oxen they couldn't even keep track of the number of animals that they were sacrificing so there's just again this picture of incredible worship again reminding themselves that this is exactly what the temple of God was to be about above everything else as we go through this chapter and we see the dedication of the Lord's house the temple you notice that the primary focus and emphasis are upon things like sacrifice and worship prayer the presence of God people being in right relationship with God again the, the focus and the emphasis was upon that which was spiritual and the people having an encounter and an experience with God it wasn't about hey um, let's try out the new tennis courts it wasn't about do we got a really cool coffee shop again I'm not saying any of these things are wrong in of themselves but their understanding of what the house of God was it was a place to meet with God the house of God was about worship it was about meeting with God and having an experience with God. It wasn't about, uh, you know, having a, a, the boat club, or, you know, or the social club. And unfortunately, sometimes, you know, th that tends to be the mistake that we make, that we almost kind of, you know, put the emphasis on the gathering place of God's people. And, and we almost want to make it more like the Moose Lodge and the social club and everything else and all these other things that we are so concerned about when the reality is, is that God's concern with his house from day one was about worship. It was about people experiencing God and encountering and having a and experience themselves personally with God. So here they're sacrificing sheep and oxen as they're transitioning the ark. Verse six says, and the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary. So they now bring it, uh, carry it back into what is called, notice verse six, the most holy place, the rear room behind the veil. And there was a veil in the in the temple as well under the wings of the cherubim remember in the back of the temple there were those two massive cherubim that were built that expand from one side of the room to the other their wings touched the wall and then touched again in the middle and the cherubim are angelic beings so they're symbolic of the angels around the presence of God again this is to be a picture a representation of the throne of God where his presence would be manifest 
for the cherubim spread their two wings, it says, over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles, and the poles, that's how they carried it, remember, extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place, that is the interior room, that those who were there, they could see the poles in the front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, that is outside the temple, and they're there to this day. In verse 9, look at this interesting insight the Bible gives to us. It says, nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses had put there at Horeb when the Lord had made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now, there we get an interesting insight that at this point historically, inside the ark, remember the ark was basically like a box that was overlaid with gold. And again, there was a lid on top of it. That lid was called the mercy seat that had the two angels on it. And that's where the atonement of sin was made. But inside of that box of the ark, the Bible tells us in other locations that there were actually multiple things for a period of time historically. Here we see the two tablets of stone to which God gave the law were still inside. But two things we know that were in there before for sure one, remember, was the budded staff of Aaron. Remember that occasion where there was debate over God's authority and anointing and who it was upon. And so God wanting to manifest and demonstrate that his calling and anointing and authority was with Aaron and his family to be his ministers. God calls that staff to bud. And so they put that in there as a reminder that was symbolic of God's authority and God's anointing upon the priestly line of Aaron. And then also within there as well, there was also remember one other thing. Anybody remember what it was? The, the golden pot of manna, right. That manna that God miraculously provided for 40 years in the wilderness, which was a reminder of the fact that though they had been disobedient and though they were unfaithful to God, God remained faithful to them. Remember in our study Sunday morning recently, we came to that verse that even when we are faithless, the Lord remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And, and again, if you think of the manna for 40 years, every day, day by day by day, God miraculously provided exactly what they needed for that day. And think of it for 40 years in the wilderness and those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness were what? Were, were really an experience of the consequences of their own sin. They were basically wandering for 40 years because they had chosen to not trust the Lord, not believe the Lord, and their unbelief and disobedience caused them to wander. But even in their unbelief and disobedience, as they experienced the consequences of their own mistake and sin, God was being gracious to them every day still. And he said, look, even in your mistake, I'm going to sustain you through your mistake. I'm going to provide for you every day. I'm going to, every day God provided for them once again saying, yeah, you made a mistake, but I'm still on your team. Yeah, you made a mistake, but I'm still going to feed you every day. I'm still going to take care of you every day. And God just kept sustaining them and miraculously for 40 years, upwards to 2 million people, God was providing daily bread for them. And so that jar of manna was there as a reminder of God's faithfulness, just like the budded staff of Aaron was a reminder of God's authority. But here's what's interesting. It tells us at this point, as the temple's now dedicated historically, those two things are no longer there. The budded staff of Aaron and the jar of manna. What happened to them? We can only speculate. Some think maybe during the time when the Philistines, remember for a while they captured the ark 
and they took the ark away from God's people until they returned it later on. Some believe that those things were taken out by the Philistines, but that the two tablets of stone of the law were left in there. Uh, we, we don't know. What the Bible does tell us is all that's remaining at this point is the two tablets of stone, which are representative of the word of God. Now, to me, I, I still find that, again, somewhat insightful because God could have let everything get taken out. But God preserved and made sure those two tablets of stone did not get removed. And those two tablets of stone are, are a representation, a reminder of the word of God. And, and again, the, Jesus says, heaven and earth may pass away, but my word will endure, it will remain forever. The word of the Lord, Isaiah says, endures forever. And, and again, you know, other things may pass away. The authority of who God may be using and how God may be ministering, that may change. Things may happen and God may not use this priest or this person anymore, but, but th that's, that's transitional. God can raise up and, and, and use anyone he wants to use. And God can provide in multiple different ways. God provided miraculously for 40 years, bread in the wilderness and manna from heaven. But then there came a time when they got into the land, God didn't have to provide that way anymore. Then God provided from the fruit of the land. So God can change the way that he provides and how he shows himself faithful. But one thing that's never going to change is the word of God. And the word of God is central to the house of God and to the things of God and to the worship of God. And the one thing that is unalterable that will always remain, that is always essential and God will never let it be removed from the proper basis of worship and the house of God and the things of God is his word. And so to me, I think it's interesting that God preserves that representation of his word. And that's the one thing that's still remaining because God kept his word because his word is something that cannot be altered or ever removed from the worship lives of his people. So at this point, just those two tablets of stone still there in the ark as it's brought in, God made sure those things were not removed and God doesn't want his word removed from the house of God I don't believe ever in any way verse 10 and it came to pass when the priests then came out of the holy place so look what's going to happen here they bring in the ark they put it into its place that's sort of the crowning thing okay there's the final furnishing the most reverent piece of the furnishings of God they put the ark in the holy of holies they're now walking out of the holy place it says that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So as they bring things together at this point, God to show his approval now brings the power of his presence in this wonderful way. Remember that cloud was the representation of God's presence. Remember when they walked through the wilderness, there was that pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, and that cloud was a representation of God's presence. And when the cloud moved, they would pack up and move. When the cloud stood still, they would stay still. But that cloud to the people was sort of a tangible representation. God is among us. God is with us. And now that cloud, it says here, that glory cloud of the presence of God comes to endorse and to show God's pleasure with the house of the Lord in such a powerful way that the presence of God comes, it says that the priests could not even continue ministering for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, what this must have been like, I can't even imagine. Again, remember what the inside of the temple was overlaid with? Gold. 
So you can imagine a building where, remember, it said the walls, the ceiling, even the floors, it said, were overlaid with gold. And now, and then God shines his light inside of this golden temple with all its ornamental decorations, you know, any extra jewels and, all that, and just the brilliance of that light, the power of the presence of God and the brightness was so incredible that no man, no person could even continue ministering because no flesh, the Bible says, should ever glory in God's presence. And God drives out the ministers. He drives out everybody. And he just manifests his presence in this incredible way. I'm sure this left an indelible mark, not only upon the priests, but upon all the people that were assembled this day to worship. No one ever forgot this day. And we see that this is something that throughout times, this happened when the tabernacle was first dedicated. It happened here in the temple. There are other times where, where God just, the fire of God, the presence of God, the, the power of God is just sort of poured out in this incredible way and the glory of the Lord just fills the house of the Lord that day in an awesome way. And here's what's incredible. That day they experienced that, but the wonderful thing is the glory of the Lord has also come in his presence to earth as well because Jesus came, not in a physical structure, but in a physical body. Jesus referred to his body, we talked about last time, as the temple of the Lord. And in Jesus was dwelling all the glory of God bodily. That's why in the transfiguration, remember, Jesus started to like radiate and glow because the reality is, is all the glory of God was dwelling in the person of Christ. L let me take that a step further. These people are having this incredible experience. The Bible tells us that Christ dwells in us. Colossians says that he's the, the hope of glory dwelling within you and I. So in a sense, we look and say, wow, man, I, Lord, could you do something like that again? Just bring your glory you know, in the church and fill the house of God in such a way that it just overwhelms us. Listen, I'm with you on that. I want that too. I want to experience the presence of God. I look at a scene like this and I say, yes, Lord, I want to experience that. I want to experience where your presence is just so overwhelming it literally just, in a sense, diminishes every idea, every agenda. It just strips us all of everything but complete, utter humility before God. But the wonderful thing is, the truth of the matter is God has imparted his glory and presence to each believer. His presence is available to us. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the Bible says, actually fills and indwells our life. I mean, that's a, a phenomenal thing to just really think about in our own lives. But this incredible experience is God's presence just comes now, overwhelms everyone. God's showing himself strong in the midst of his people. And Solomon spoke, it says, verse 12, saying, The Lord said that he would dwell in the dark cloud, and I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. And then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly was standing. So at this point, King Solomon now turns and he's going to begin to pronounce a blessing upon the people of Israel. And then ultimately he'll transition into prayer. We'll see as he moves forward. Verse 15, Solomon said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David. And with his hand has fulfilled it. Now take note of that statement because you'll see it a few times in this chapter. God spoke with his mouth and then with his hand he fulfilled it. I'm so glad 
that God is able to fulfill with his hand the things that he says with his mouth. Because a lot of times human beings say all kinds of things with their mouths and then they never fulfill things. I'm going to do this or I want to do that. And they, they, they say they're going to do something, but then they never follow through and uh, you know, carry it out to completion. Some of that is just you know, human negligence and others of that is just sometimes you know, we don't always have the capacity to do everything we say we're going to do because we're weak and frail human beings. But when God says something, you can take it to the bank because God has the power to fulfill it and he has the faithfulness to make sure he does. And here Solomon's reflecting on this, Lord, what you spoke with your mouth, your hand has now fulfilled. This temple has been built. What God spoke to David about, 2 Samuel 7, that a temple would be built, that God would build him a house. This is now coming to pass as his hand is fulfilling it through Solomon. Verse 16, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I've chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. So again, just that, that reminder of God's word to David that you know God had never up to this point chosen a specific location, but what mattered to God most of all was not necessarily a, a place or a physical structure. What mattered to God more than anything was the reality of, of working in people's lives. He said, I hadn't chosen any city or any tribe, but what I did, he said, ultimately, is I, I chose David to be over my people, which I think is just a reminder that what God cares about more than anything else is what happens in the lives of people. Not necessarily structures and locations and physical things, but God cares about what's happening in people's lives. And, and please don't miss this reality. This incredible temple is being built here. Now God's you know, having this you know, manifestation of his presence as they're dedicating the temple and that temple until, if I can just bring your memory back for a moment, until verse 10 and 11, when the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord and God's presence came, until that moment happened, all it was was a really nice building. That's all it was. It was a really awesome building with really cool stones and a lot of gold and a lot of wood and all kinds of fancy artwork. But until the presence of God filled that place, it was just a building. And God help us to always remember, look, nothing wrong to have a nice facility and have a building and a place to meet. Wonderful thing. You know, this is, this is a tool. We should use facilities for God's purposes. This is a tool, but it's just something to house the, the work of God. That's all it is. And you can have a wonderful facility, but if the presence of God is not being manifest in that facility among the people of God, it's just a nice building. That's all it is. The whole point's being missed. The whole point is whether you're in a you know, $3.5 million structure or whether you're meeting in somebody's living room with seven people having a Bible study, what matters most in the meeting is the presence of God there. That's what matters more than anything. And this is what the people are realizing. God's presence is being poured out among them and they're realizing this is about God's presence. It's about people. Solomon says, verse 17, reflecting upon these things, he says, it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son 
who came from your body or shall come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke. I have filled the position of my father, David, and sit on the throne of Israel. And as the Lord promised, and I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark, which is in the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So again, Solomon reflects. We've talked about this and seen it many times before of this reality again that the temple and the whole concept of the temple originated, remember, in the heart of David. David had this desire that he wanted to build a house for the Lord. He loved the Lord. Lord, I want to build you a house. I want to, you kind of remember David was sort of feeling bad. Lord, here I am living in a palace and you're out there in a tent. And I, Lord, you deserve better than that. And so the whole desire to do this work for God, which ultimately was a part of the God's plan and purpose, it all began in the heart of David. But remember, God said to David, David, I'm pleased that it's in your heart, but you, you've been a man of war and you shed much blood. And so it wouldn't be, appropriate for you to build a temple but one who will come from your family Solomon as we see here will ultimately be the one who constructs the temple but again you take notice I love what verse 18 says God said to David when he wanted to build that temple he says whereas it was in your heart verse 18 to build a temple for my name you did well that it was in your heart again how wonderful to realize that even the things that we have in our heart to do for God, God's pleased with that. And there may be times where we have something in our heart that we'd like to do for God, something in our heart that, that it just originates there. Lord, I'd love to see this happen. And, and the Lord says, as soon as it comes into your heart, I, I'm pleased just the fact that you had the idea. It blesses me just that you had a heart to want to help in that way or serve in that way. And sometimes there are desires that come into our heart. And even if it's never done by us or never carried out by us, it doesn't mean that God's not still pleased with it. And there are times where God you know, allows desires to come into our heart. And I think sometimes we need to realize God sees your desire. And he's pleased with that desire. He's honored. He's blessed that you love him enough that you may want to see something come to pass. And perhaps there's something that's been in your heart that you haven't been able to do, but it's been in your heart. And God says, it's good that it was in your heart. It makes me so pleased that that desire was in your heart. And, and here, David, to have that recognition, though he didn't carry it out, the Lord was still well pleased and honored and rewarded that, I believe, because it was there. And David just did what he could to prepare and help Solomon to accomplish what ultimately God wanted to use him to bring about. Well, verse 22 says, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and he spread out his hands toward heaven. Now, as we come to verse 22, basically Solomon now is going to enter into prayer. And here again, this beautiful picture, this isn't the spiritual leader of the land. This is the king of Israel. This is the national leader leading the dedication ceremony at the temple, at the house of God for people to enter into worship of the Lord. What a beautiful thing here. Here is Solomon, the king of Israel, their political leader, and he's standing before all the people. I mean, could you just envision something? Here's the national, he's standing before all the people and he's at the dedication ceremony of the house of God and he stands there and he lifts up his hands toward heaven. And he just starts praying. 
And he's going to just start praying now for God's hand to be upon the nation as a part of this dedication ceremony. So he raises up his hands now, spreads out his hands toward heaven. The idea is dependency. Lord, we're dependent upon you. The idea is is receptiveness. God, our hands are empty. We need your help. That's the idea of spreading out one's hands toward heaven. And now he just begins to pray this rather lengthy prayer. And I think some ways trying to pick apart prayers can almost be unhealthy sometimes because prayer is prayer. It's communication to God. So let's see what Solomon prayed as we read through this together. Solomon prayed, and we're going to see specifically about seven things he sort of specifically asked God to do. Verse 23, he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or earth like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you have promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth, here it is again, and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day so what is the first thing solomon does he just starts worshiping god very first thing he does remember jesus told us he said when you pray pray in this manner our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven before he says anything about give us this day our daily bread or forgive us our trespasses there's just worship There's just acknowledgement. God, you're in heaven. You're our father. Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. And here, Solomon, this picture again, when we see prayers in the Bible, certainly the Holy Spirit has recorded these things for us to learn from. The first thing he does is he prays before he asks for anything. He just starts worshiping God. And I think it's a great reminder and a model for us. Sometimes before we just rush in and start making our demands of the king, sometimes we need to give the king the glory that he's due and acknowledge him and worship him in our own personal lives and I think in our public prayers as well. This is a public prayer that we would just at times not negate the fact that it's important to give worship to God, to give you know adoration towards him. Again, there's that statement, verse 24. He says, God, you've kept what you've promised. You've spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand. And you know, what a wonderful thing. Look in your life and tell me there have not been times where God has spoken his word, he's given you promises, and he's provided, and he's fulfilled. And the fact that he has the faithfulness to be able to do that is something he's worthy to be thanked for and glorified as a result of. Verse 25, he says, Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you've promised your servant David my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you have walked before me. So he says, Lord, please honor your word. He's praying back God's word. We've seen these promises God already gave to Solomon. He's saying, Lord, keep your word. This is what your word says. Using God's word to pray. Very wise way to pray because that's God's will. God's word is God's will. It's a good way to pray, to use God's word in our prayers. Verse 26, and now I pray... O God of Israel, let your, notice, word come true, which you've spoken to your servant David, my father. So there's a, God, this is what your word says. Bring your word to pass. I encourage you. I used to, you know, have my devotions earlier on in my life where I'd read and then I'd pray. Or I'd pray, then I'd read. Now I don't do that anymore. Now my Bible's open and I read and pray. 
And as I read God's word, I stop and pray periodically because I'll read something and, and what I read, and I, I feel like it's, now we're having a dialogue, God. It's not pray, then open up and read or read and then open up and pray. It's as I'm reading, that's what I utilize. Certainly there are certain things I pray for, but I utilize, Lord, what, Lord, I pray that what you're saying here in your word, Lord, would you work in this way or would you help this person or Lord, would you help me to, man, Lord, I, I, you know, that, that's kind of speaking to me. Would you help me in this area? And I, I like this, to use God's word as the basis for your prayer and for your time of fellowship with God. No better way to know you're praying in accordance with God's will. Lord, bring your word to pass. Let this come true when I'm understanding from what the word of God says. Solomon says, Lord, let your word come true, which you've spoken. But will in God indeed dwell on the earth, he says? Behold, heaven of the heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple, which I have built. Again, he realizes God can't be confined to a building. The, the, the only place where you know, God's presence, in a sense, is, is being manifested is in heaven itself. Only the heavens is the proper dwelling place for God. Yet regard, he says, the prayer of your servant and his supplication. O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this temple night and day, toward the place which you have said, my name shall be there, and that you may hear the prayer of your servant that he makes towards this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place here in heaven. Notice, your dwelling place and when you hear forgive so he's saying lord when your people pray when they turn towards this place and to this day still at times you know the, the jews have this reverence for jerusalem and the house of god and that this is their was always been their mindset that the presence of god was there and to pray towards that direction and that's what solomon is referencing here lord when your people pray toward this place but notice this important concept he says god when we pray we're not just making vain repetitions we're not just saying things solomon really believed that praying is because god's listening you see how many times he says there in verse 29 and 30 lord hear hear he says lord when, when we pray hear what we're saying because there was this genuine heart attitude, and I think sometimes this is really important, because sometimes I, I genuinely wonder for myself, and I wonder as well, that when we're praying, are we really praying with faith, believing God's really listening? And God's really hearing. Sometimes we just, like, you know, randomly just start spouting off religious speech. And I wonder sometimes if we really believe God's listening and God's hearing, would we pray different? Would we perhaps be a lot more direct and right to the point instead of just rambling with religious jargon? Would we say, God, do this. And, and specifically with heart and passion, asking God to do specific direct things because we really believe he's actually hearing and he's listening and that he has the power with his hand to act and to fulfill the things that he promises to us in his word. So he's saying, Lord, when we pray, hear in heaven, he says. And when you hear, forgive when we fail. And then he goes on, verse 31. These are the sort of seven things he sort of roughly prays for. First thing in verse 31, when anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath, 
and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then here in heaven, notice, and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head and justifying the righteous and giving him according to his righteousness. So the first thing he says is, God, when there's an issue or dispute between people and we sin against one another because that will happen in the nation. He says, when that happens, God, and there's a dispute and we can't tell who's right and who's wrong, who's righteous and who's unrighteous, then he says, God, would you hear and give wisdom and God, you settle out the issue. Great way to solve problems among people. God, when when we sin against one another, he says, settle out the issues. Just pray and bring resolution, God, and you deal with the wrong party and justify the innocent one. Verse 33, the second thing he asks, when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. So his second request, Lord, when we find ourselves, he says, being defeated by our enemies. When we're suffering defeat and we're losing the battle, he says, verse 33, because we've sinned against you. Notice Solomon understood something that sin causes weakness in our lives. They were being defeated. He says, when we're being defeated by our enemies because there's been sin between us and you, God, and now we're lacking power and we're defenseless and vulnerable because in essence, what would happen is sin causes separation. And when the people would sin against God, God would in a sense just pull back his hands because sin interrupts our fellowship with God. And sometimes when they were guilty of sin, God would let them suffer defeat. They wouldn't be experiencing victory and their enemies would start to conquer them. And he says, when we've done that, God, reveal our sin to us, help us to be confessing and repenting and God forgive us when we're suffering defeat. And sometimes in our lives, we need to realize that sin causes interference and sometimes if we find ourselves maybe suffering defeat and maybe some enemies are conquering us and things that are the enemies in our lives are having victory in our life, when we should be having victory over those enemies, maybe there's something that needs to address between us and God. And we need to seek God's forgiveness and perhaps acknowledge, Lord, forgive us because it seems that we're suffering defeat and the enemy's having victory over us rather than us having victory over our enemies. Verse 35, the third thing he asks is when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because again, they've sinned against you. When we pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from sin because you afflict them, then here in heaven, forgive the sin of your servants, your people, Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you've given to your people as an inheritance. So here Solomon refers to, again, this was part of the Mosaic covenant. Remember Deuteronomy 28 and 29, these chapters where the blessings and the curses were pronounced and God said, if you obey me, I'll bring the rains upon your land. If you turn away from me, God said, I'll withhold the rains. And remember Israel predominantly was an agricultural and agrarian society. So they lived off of farming the land. Well, you can farm the land, but there's no Nile to come and flood the land there in Israel. Unless God sends the rain, you're not going to survive. There's going to be no fruitfulness. So they were dependent upon God to send the rains. So sometimes when they would disobey God, 
God would withhold the rain. And his intention was to make it hard to get their attention and to make the difficulty be something to awaken them that they had sinned and done something that was displeasing to God. And he says, Lord, when this happens and you afflict us in this way, he says, cause us to be taught by you the good way in which we should walk. Show us how to repent, God. Show us how to turn back to you as a people. And sometimes we need the Lord to intervene to reveal our sin to us and show us how to turn back to him, whether collectively or sometimes even individually. Verse 37, he says, And when there's a famine in the land, pestilence, blight, mildew, locusts, grasshoppers, or when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever the plague or whatever the sickness there is, whatever the prayer, whatever the supplication is made by anyone, by all your people Israel, when each one, I like the statement, knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act, he says God. Give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days they live in the land which you gave to their fathers. Notice two things Solomon says there as he's praying under the inspiration of the Spirit. I love verse 38 when he's talking there. He says, for each one knows the plague of his own heart. Each person, he says, is aware that the greatest plague that exists is the plague of their own sinful heart. And I hope tonight that you have become keenly aware of the reality of the depravity and the cancer and the plague of your own heart. Again, because the problem of the matter is always the problem of the heart. The heart of every matter, is, 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 it's the heart issue. That's, that's always the heart of the matter, is the matter of the heart. And our hearts, even Paul recognized. Remember Romans 7, Paul said, the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing. And the things I do want to do, I don't do. Then what does Paul say? 30 years into his Christianity, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul realized my heart is sick. There's a plague in my heart. This is why we need the Lord's forgiveness and why we need the work of the Lord because there's a plague in all of our hearts that makes us prone to do things that are just unhealthy and displeasing to God that interfere with our spiritual lives. And the wonderful thing is, as Solomon says this, asking for forgiveness, he says, verse 39, but Lord, you know the hearts of all the sons of men. Now that should make you and I encouraged. We know the plague and the sickness of our own heart. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And here's the crazy thing. God knows your heart better than you do. God alone knows the hearts of all men, the Bible says. God knows how plagued and filthy and rotten your heart is, and yet he's the great physician. Jesus said that. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. And Jesus knows how sick my heart is, and yet he wants to work with my heart. He wants to help me with the plague of my own heart. He knows your heart and doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry. That's heart failure. You're done. I mean, it's just, I've never seen a heart like that. That is you, irreparable. Don't even waste the you know, time on the surgery. No, heart surgery would never work on that person. Instead, he gets in there 
and he does whatever it takes, surgical, spiritual, triple, quadruple bypasses, you know, multiple open heart surgeries, and he does whatever is necessary to keep working on our heart condition and helping us. Verse 41, moreover, he says, when a foreigner who's not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays towards this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you that all peoples of the earth, notice, may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know your people Israel and that this temple which I have built is called by your name. So there Solomon's praying that they as a people could be a witness to other nations and that as foreign nations would perhaps be among Israel, that as they prayed and sought God, that God would reveal himself and demonstrate himself as the one true God to them. Verse 44, and when your people go out to battle against the enemy, wherever you send them. So take notice, sometimes God actually sends us out to battle. And that is the leading of the Lord. And when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you've chosen, which I built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause as they battle. The seventh thing he prays for, verse 46, and when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Now that should be obvious if you have a plague in your heart, right? The Bible is very clear with the reality that one thing is true about every human being, there is no one who does not sin. You know, I mean, that's both liberating and in the same way, just enlightening to realize that God's aware that we, we all sin and fall short. There's no one who does not sin and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy and take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near. Again, this refers to, we'll see the time of the captivity when the Assyrians and Babylonians come in and conquer God's people and remove them from their land because of their national sin. God pulls his hand of favor off of their nation. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where you've carried them captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land where you took them captive saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we've committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul, in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray toward their land which you gave their fathers, the city which you've chosen and the temple which I built for your name, then hear, he says, God, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who've sinned against you and all their transgressions, what they've transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace. What a description of their time in Egypt. Who wants to go back to Egypt and live in the world? Back to an iron furnace. That your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant, the supplication of your people Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you have separated them from among the peoples of the earth, to your inheritance, to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses and you brought out our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Now, the last thing he's praying for here in these verses 46 down through 53 is in regards to the times, and we'll see this in historical you know, chapters ahead, where they begin to disobey and rebel against God. The Assyrians come in and take away the 
northern part of Israel in 722 B.C. Later on in 586 B.C., the Babylonians will come in and take Judah captive and they'll be there for 70 years. But even while they're there, Solomon prophetically, and this is interesting, think of this, he's praying and clearly he's being led of the Spirit of God because he's praying prophetically about things that are going to happen years and years ahead. And he says, and God, when we've been taken captive because we've sinned against you and you've had to remove us from the land you gave to us, when we come to our senses, he says, and when we repent and we confess our sins, then God have mercy upon us. And he even speaks here about moving with favor in the hearts of the people who took them captive. Again, all these things that will happen as these experiences unfold for them as a nation. And he's already praying about these realities that really there's somewhat something prophetic about his prayer here as he's recognizing what's going to happen. I'd love to see this because this show, this is truly a spirit-inspired prayer. He's not just praying about it. He's literally in tune with the Lord and praying prophetically about things that are going to happen and ultimately take place. Look at verse 54. We'll, we'll close with this here as, as Solomon sort of closes out his prayer. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication of the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord, take notice, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up toward heaven. Now, after this, he's going to bless the people as he sends them home. We'll pick up there next time. But notice, as the prayer comes to a close, it says when Solomon finished praying this prayer, again, he's praying it before the people publicly, he arose from before the altar from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up towards heaven. So, at the beginning of the prayer, he raises up his hands and he just boldly, no fear, no judgment, no understanding of separation of church and state. He just raises his hands and he just starts praying for the nation and asking for God's involvement in the nation and for God's hand to be upon his people. And somewhere, apparently, in the course of the prayer, he just falls down on his knees. In total humility, on his knees, his hands lifted up towards heaven, just crying out to God and seeking God in prayer. What a beautiful, beautiful image. Certainly, it is not the posture of our body that matters most. It's the, it's the posture and the position of our heart. But I'll tell you something. There is something really beautiful about at times when you're praying feeling compelled as you're praying in the midst of praying to just, and I hope it happens to you, to just begin to lift your hands as you're praying to God and say, God, I, I, I just, what is this? this? This is surrender. The cops go like this. I hope you go like this. That means I give up. I surrender. You're in charge. I'm not in charge here. That you lift your hands to God. Or like this to say, Lord, I'm empty-handed. Lord, I can't bring this to pass with my own hands. I have nothing to bring. Lord, I can't make it happen. I'm empty-handed. I'm totally dependent, God. You have to, by your hand, do what I can't do with my hands. And to be on your knees before God. To just humbly get on your knees. If nothing else, sometimes I find for me that getting on my knees when I'm spending time in prayer sometimes, it just does something for me mentally and internally to just humble myself before God and, and to show God I'm that desperate and I'm that insignificant and, and just to humble myself before the Lord. And what a beautiful thing. Look, if a king of a nation 
can have enough courage and love for God to do that publicly, God help us. If we can't do that privately in our prayer life, he's doing this before the whole nation at a temple dedication ceremony. Let's stand, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word.